It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. Our guest today for podcast number one of the CEO podcast series into the corner office is Adam Bryant. Adam is a respected and noted expert on executive leadership, whose work includes 525 corner office columns for the New York Times, upon which this podcast is based. He joins Merrick & Co. as Managing Director and Partner after a distinguished career as an editor and journalist. Adam has a proven ability to distill real-world lessons and insights from his hundreds of interviews and turn them into practical tools presentations, and exercises to help Merrick clients deepen their leadership benches and strengthen their teams. He works with executive leadership teams and organizations to foster a culture of innovation based on a best practice framework he developed for his widely praised book, Quick and Nimble. Prior to joining Merrick, Adam worked for 30 years as a journalist, including 18 years as a reporter, editor, and columnist at the New York Times. Brian earned his bachelor's degree from York University in Toronto and his master's from Columbia University in New York. He and his wife have two children and live in New York City. Adam Bryant, welcome into the corner office. Thanks for having me, Brent. Oh, wow. This is just wonderful. Uh, in so many ways, as we've communicated over the last couple of months, you know, you've been the inspiration for this podcast series. As I said uh, in my intro, I've been reading your column avidly for years. I have, of course, my favorites. Uh, but today, we really want to talk about you and get an opportunity to understand, you know, kind of how you've progressed through your career. And of course, a lot of the things that you've learned in conversations with CEOs all over the country. But maybe you can start by telling us a little bit about your early years and what they were like. Sure. So I uh, was born in Montreal and sort of border hop between Canada and the U.S. every five years. Montreal, then New York, then back to Montreal, went to college in Toronto. Uh, I was kind of a restless kid. I played a lot of sports. I, I was one of those kids who had trouble sitting still. So uh, I was uh, either playing organized sports or pick up street hockey or ice hockey with my friends. And when I wasn't doing that, just, you know, that was back in the day when, you know, you just sort of say to your parents, see you later, I'll be back later. And, <laughs> yeah. and, and you had to kind of make your own fun. And so, you know, you'd build like 
ridiculously dangerous jumps with your friends for your bikes and uh-huh. do all kinds of stuff that was probably dangerous, but uh, it was certainly fun. Well, hockey in Canada certainly makes sense. What were some of the other sports that you enjoyed growing up? Um, I played rugby for a while, but the way it was played is that basically, you know, it was kind of football teams without pads and they weren't really <laughs> following the rugby skill set. Uh, it was pretty dangerous. I played baseball. I, you know, with sports, I would generally a pretty quick study so I could get up to speed uh, on on most things. But uh, again, just kind of that fidgetiness. I, I, I've always had trouble sitting still for very long. Were you a good student? I was pretty good. Um, I, again, sort of a quick study, like I could pick up things pretty quickly and enjoyed it. And it's sort of, I, I'm interested in a lot of things and I was pretty good at math and physics, but English as well. And there was one time when uh, in elementary school and you know I was sort of putting up my hand a lot and maybe challenging the teacher and at one point the teacher said do you want to teach the class and I said sure <laughs> good you did so you know I like to keep my ego in check and have some humility but in, in that moment I thought yeah sure that's great well you obviously had an early interest in communications and journalism I know that's kind of how you started your career what were your motivations around that? You know, was English your kind of best subject? Did you like writing already in high school or did that come later? A little bit. You know, my father was a journalist. Ah. And so I went through the kind of faux rebellion where I said to myself in my early years, you know, I'll never become a journalist and then <laughs> uh, joined the, the college newspaper. Uh, and just it was one of those moments like, wow, this is great. You get to talk to people and ask questions. And it seemed to kind of fit the way my brain works, kind of always absorbing. You have to be a quick study. You're sort of a professional quick study and then be able to turn around and explain it and almost teach it to readers and what you learn. I just thought, well, you know, it doesn't get much better than this. So uh, I'm going to pursue this. And what about leadership roles? Anything entrepreneurial when you were growing up? Uh, had a paper route? Yeah, I did. And I have to say, as a teenager in college, it was just sort of always working. Um, my wife and I once kind of sat down and had a little competition of like who had more jobs by the time they were 25. <laughs> and we were pretty close, but it was a pretty high number. So, you know, I delivered papers for years. Yep. There's actually a lot of important lessons in delivering papers because it's one of those things you have to do it every day. Absolutely. Right? There's, there's no choice. And and that was back in the day where you had to knock on doors and, and collect your money yep. and uh, sort of dealing with people. And then I was just, you know, Again, just sort of tons of jobs. I had a job in high school, a fascinating job where I signed up for a temp agency, but it wasn't office temp work. It was factory temp work. Oh, wow. Very interesting. Tell me about that. Yeah. So late at night, you know, you'd get the call. And by the time I had a car when I was 16, because that's what I was saving the paper route for, <laughs> go to a factory and put on a hairnet and make Big Mac sauce or peanut butter or just go to work at all these different factories. And it was just fascinating, you know, not only to see how stuff worked, but you just get exposed to a lot of things. And I, I worked in restaurants a lot. That's how my wife and I met in Toronto. We worked at the same restaurant. And I think that's also great training because, you, you know, it helps you develop your people skills. And uh, both our daughters who are grown now, but they worked in restaurants too. And Again, I just think there's such great lessons there that can be applied in all aspects of life. Absolutely. What were some of those key lessons? You know, just being able to deal with people. When you work in restaurants, everybody's kind of finicky, right? And right. fussy. And, and especially when you become a waiter, if you want tips, you've got to accommodate them. And just always meeting people and trying to make it a good experience. And, and also being able to 
handle pressure. And, you know, this is a theme that I heard with a lot of my interviews with CEOs. I mean, uh, this guy, Jensen Wong, who runs NVIDIA, you know, he worked at Denny's when he was younger. And he said it was great training because you, you learn how to deal with pressure. Absolutely. You know, when you've got the rush, when things are crazy and you're a waiter, like the, you can't point your finger at anybody. I mean, <laughs> you're the man on the job. <laughs> you can blame the kitchen for not getting the food out, but everything's on you for making sure that the customers have an enjoyable experience. And I find even today, I have what I call waiter brain. When I go to a restaurant, I have trouble turning it off. <laughs> you know, I'm just noticing stuff. And, you know, to be honest, I just find restaurant service pretty bad across the board. Not that I'm fussy or anything, but just, you know, within three minutes, they've kind of made 10 obvious mistakes, right? Right. Yeah. You learn a lot about customer service or in some cases you don't if they don't do well. But uh, I would agree those types of jobs are very helpful. You went on to college, you went to undergrad in Canada and then came down to get your graduate work in New York. When you went there, and again, you talked about your dad being a journalist, did you have a pretty good idea then that you wanted to study communications, journalism, and get into that line of work? Or did you, you know, kind of explore a little bit before you actually uh, kind of set into that career? Yeah, it was really in college when I, I started working for the college newspaper. I did that. I also uh, worked at a local TV news station while I was going to college. I was also on the fencing team. So again, to be honest, I kind of set up my actual classroom calendar uh, to spend as little time on campus as possible just between <laughs> between working at a restaurant the TV news station the school newspaper and uh, and the fencing team that I was on uh, you know I sort of crammed everything down in my studies just because I, I found other stuff more interesting right uh, at that point I did decide you know I really do want to be a journalist and applied to Columbia and uh, I didn't get in but then I followed up with them and I said, look, I really want to go here. And I spent a, a year working at the TV news station and doing some other things and kind of strengthening my portfolio. And they let me in the second year. Awesome. And was that the TV work that you did in Canada? Yeah. So it was about a year in between your undergraduate and your graduate school. Exactly. What did you achieve your undergraduate degree in? English. In English. And then your master's was in communications or journalism? Journalism at Columbia. Got it. Terrific. Great. Making the move down uh, to New York, how was that? It sounds like you had a little bit of back and forth over the time, but obviously New York's a very different place than uh, it was Montreal, right? Was that your original home or Toronto? Montreal and then border hopped every five years. And yeah. I, I, I'm a dual citizen because I've spent so much time on, on each side of the border. I, I like to say I'm, I'm bilingual. I speak Canadian and American. <laughs> <laughs> I loved going to graduate school in, in New York City. And, and I have to say probably the most important lesson and test at Columbia is you are a student reporter and you have to get people to talk to you right. when you're doing your stories. And it's not like you can say, I work for the New York Times or any other newspaper. So there's this, a, a confidence that they'll see their words in print if you're quoting them. But, um, you know, just that discipline of how do you get people to talk to you who have no reason to talk to you? Right. Uh, so that when I started working for actual real newspapers, it, it felt like gravy. So how'd you do that? What were some of the secrets that got you into those conversations? I think it's sort of the basic skills that are around listening and interviewing. You know, you have to show genuine, authentic interest and you have to show some energy and curiosity. And it's just getting people, even if their kind of default is like, I'm too busy or I don't want to do this or I'm concerned, it's just to kind of work through that. And I think the most important 
part of working through that initially, again, is just showing that genuine, authentic interest, not only in them, but the subject, showing some passion. And then people decide, I don't need to do this. And I've got other things I should do, but I want to do this. And you know, I've always thought that people kind of have three organizing buckets in their brains for how they spend their time. And the three buckets are should, need, and want. And if you try to compete in the should and need buckets, you're always going to have a lot of competition. So you have to get people to want to talk to you. What did you enjoy most about it? Was that connection with others? Was it writing the piece and actually getting published? Was it the reaction that you got from the readers or, or a combination of all of those? And, and if so, in kind of what priority? Yeah, all of the above. I mean, it, it just the, the great thing and, you know, spent basically 30 years in journalism. I'm still doing a lot of writing now, but it is one of those jobs that it uses kind of every muscle in your brain from where do you get the idea to the interviewing process to processing and thinking about that. And and writing is, you know, it's basically like explaining and teaching and then you get the feedback. Just the entire process I, I find so engaging. And, you know, my 18 years I spent at the New York Times, you can't beat the New York Times as a platform you get that impact of uh, when people read your work. Now, did you go directly to the Times uh, coming out of Columbia or tell us a little bit about your early career? Yeah. After Columbia, I worked at the small weekly business journal in Southern Connecticut and did that for about a year. And then I moved to a medium-sized daily northwest of the city, Hmm. a place called Middletown, New York, and did that for a few years. Um, I guess I was probably about 27, 28 by then. I was a reporter for a year. And then my boss, who was the business editor, became the managing editor. And he said, you're going to be the new business editor. And I said, no, I'm not. want to stay reporting. And he said, no, no, you're going to be the new business editor. So in my late 20s, I was suddenly managing a staff of seven people. Um, Two of them were old enough to be my father and wanted the job that they gave me. And I was a first-time manager. And I think I made every mistake in the book and and, and probably invented a few new ones. What were some of your early leadership lessons in that period? You know, you learn from your mistakes. As a manager, you need to flex as much as you can to the individual people you work with. And I think my default initially was, you know, I wanted everybody not to do it my way specifically, but to sort of, I set a pretty high bar and I would get kind of frustrated if people didn't meet it as opposed to coaching them and helping them get there. Right. And, you know, I was young. I wasn't ambitious in terms of getting titles or anything like that. It was just, I was ambitious for the journalism we were doing and I wanted it to be excellent. And when you apply your own standards to other people, that's frustrating for them and it's frustrating for you. So I I learned over time to sort of let go. Right. Did you continue to manage people through your uh, journalist career, even during the years at uh, New York Times? Or did you go to periods where you were you know, working more as an individual reporter or not particularly having people responsibility? How, how did your career kind of project? So after I left that small paper to join the New York Times, that early management experience, um, at that point, I said, I never want to be a manager again. And so I, I wanted to go back to reporting full time, did some networking, found out about a position with the New York Times in the, in the Detroit Bureau as a full time freelancer. Um, 
And uh, my wife, who's a teacher at that point, she lost her job because of state budget cuts. We had a one-year-old at the time and we thought, well, you know, if, if we're ever going to do this, let's take the chance. So we loaded up a U-Haul and a car and moved to Detroit. I took a pay cut and no job security and figured, well, let's put some chips on that square. And that was my first job with the New York Times as a kind of full-time freelancer. And then six months later, I got an uh, offer from the Wall Street Journal and I used that to get a full-time job at the New York Times. So then I moved back to New York as a reporter in the business section for about 10 years, covering a lot of different things. Left the New York Times after that first decade to go to Newsweek. I, I was intrigued to learn more about the magazine world and wanted to build those muscles. I was a senior writer there. And then we had a bit of turnover in the business editor chair. And after two more, all my colleagues, my fellow writers were saying, hey, Adam, you should do that because they were coming to me anyways to talk about their stories and get advice about their stories. So I was kind of doing the job and I was becoming impatient with bad editors because, you know, when you're a writer and, and you don't have a great editor, that can really affect your life. And so it was just one of those moments where, you know, I enjoyed all my years of reporting and reluctantly went back into editing, but really did enjoy it. And um, I've editor for about 12 years between Newsweek and the New York Times, editing teams of reporters and running coverage. Tell me how the corner office came about or, or what sparked the idea for it? Uh, it came when I went back to the New York Times. Um, it had been this sort of piece of sand that had been, <laughs> you know, kind of grit in my brain, just this idea that I was toying with. And then when I went back to the New York Times and I was in different editing roles, but I had this idea. It's a, it was a pretty simple idea, which is what if I sat down with CEOs and literally never asked them a single question about their company and their business and their strategy. Instead, just ask them about you know leadership lessons they've learned over the course of their lives and how they lead inside their company rather than how they lead in their industry and how they hire, what qualities they look for, what questions they ask, and what career and life advice they give to new college grads. So that was the initial what if. It was pretty different at the time because even to this day, CEOs for the most part, if you look at any Q&A was a CEO in the business press and boil them down. There are essentially two questions. It's what's your growth plan and what's the competitive landscape. CEOs are interviewed almost like football coaches, like, how are you going to win this Sunday? And I just, you know, because of my years of being a business reporter and spending a lot of time with CEOs, I just, more time I spent with them, it just, they seem really smart and wise and funny and they've got fast brains, like not all of them, but most of them seem to. And so that's kind of what led to that what if. And after I, I did the first one, uh, when I walked out of the CEO's office, I just said to myself, this is going to work. Tell me about a few of those early interviews. Did you always conduct them in person? I, I did a few of them um, early on, probably about three or four over the phone. And I quickly decided I would never do them over the phone. Uh, so I, I did, you know, all but a handful of the more than 500 in person. And I did corner office as a side gig in addition to all my day jobs. And the way I did that was just, I was always working three months in advance. So I would just tell the CEO once I agreed to interview them, because I would kind of get pitched all day. Once I agreed to interview somebody, I would say, don't make a special trip for me. But when you're coming to New York, let's set up a time. And they would come to the Times building where we'd photograph them. Oh, so they always came to you. Because we had to photograph them in our studio, right? And also because I didn't put any demands on their schedule, I just said, look, whenever you come to New York, let me know in advance and let's find a time. 
Yeah, sounds like you always got them at some point. At some point, yeah. And by giving myself a, a three-month cushion, I was never scrambling. Tell us about your first guess and what you enjoyed most about that conversation. Sure. So the first one was a guy named Greg Brenneman, who I got to know when I was covering the airline industry. He was the president of Continental. He's now the chairman of a PE firm called CCMP. And just one of the fastest brains I've ever seen. Super candid, like there's no filters with him. Like he just is completely transparent. And also he has one of those brains. He can simplify really complex things in a funny, disarming way and super engaging. And he and I kind of had a few conversations. So he was the first and pretty quickly after I launched it, because you know I did it every week for the better part of a decade, never missed a week. Soon after I launched it, I would get pitched all day by PR people. Oh, cool. Yeah, exactly. And I, on a typical day, I would get you know five, seven pitches saying, please interview our CEO. So I became the doorman at the club, right? And, and, and it, it was an interesting front row seat on the PR industry. But the pitches that did catch my attention, I was always just looking for interesting backgrounds and some small sign that they did different things. Because I don't need to tell you just because you're a successful business person doesn't mean you're a good leader. Um, and just because you are a leader doesn't mean you're a good leader. There are yellers, there are phone throwers, and I wanted to avoid them at all costs. That's how I did it. Which CEO has been your favorite to interview? Mine was certainly Alan Mulally, the former CEO of Ford. Mm -hmm. My son ended up going and working there, and it was great to know more about him. And he certainly verified many of the things that you wrote about yep. in his experience with him. That's a tough question. I have to say, I mean, it's like asking me to choose among my children. You know, I really enjoyed all the conversations. And I would have to say that probably one of the biggest surprises I had, the thing that I did not expect was the answers I heard to the simple question I always ask, which is, how do you hire? What questions do you ask? And just remarkable creativity. You know, even shortly before I left the Times, I was still hearing job interview questions I had never heard before. And, you know, at first that surprised me, but then it kind of makes sense as well, because what I came to appreciate that, look, if, if you're the CEO, by the time somebody gets to you for a job interview, that person is coached, they're scripted, they're trained, they know all the quote, right answers. You know, my biggest weakness is I care too much and I'm a perfectionist and all that kind of silly stuff. To them, they say it's like elevator music. They've, they've just kind of heard all the pat answers. So, almost out of necessity, they have to come up with what I call bank shot questions, which is like people present this polished facade. How do you get around that to find out what people are really like? And that's been one of the most fun aspects of just sort of hearing these questions. And the number of times I've looked at the CEO when I'm interviewing him, I said, I have never heard that before. <laughs> So they ask really interesting interview questions. And some of them are great dinner party questions after you've pulled the third cork on the bottle of wine, you know. What were some of your favorite interview questions or most interesting ones the CEOs gave you over the years? Yeah, a couple of my favorites. One of them is, if there were no humans on the planet, only animals, what kind of animal would you be? And it's a two-part question. And the second part is, and why? You know, the animal is interesting, but it really gets the self-awareness, right? You know, why would you be that animal? And I've done this with groups of students over the years and executives. It is amazing how much you can learn about somebody with that question. I, I, I generally find people come up with the animal pretty quickly. And some of the explanations are pretty bizarre. I mean, people have told me they'd be a rat, they'd be an ant. And you think, really? But then they start explaining why and you go, that's pretty good. I, probably my favorite question, because 
I don't need to tell you, Brent, but you know, the whole interview process is pretty artificial, right? And the point of the interview at the risk of stating the obvious is like, how can I find out what you're going to be like three months from now or six months from now? After the initial honeymoon period and when I put you in stressful situations, how are you going to react? What are you going to be like in a bad day? You're trying to get that crystal ball. And the question I heard from a CEO that to me is the single best question is, what are the qualities of your parents that you like the most and the least? Can you remember who asked that, Adam? <laughs> Bob Brennan, who's now at, at CA Technologies. Um, fascinating interview. If, if any of your listeners want to look it up, um, just Google Bob Brennan, Adam Bryant, corner office, you, you'll see it. But, uh, you know, to me, that was just fascinating because I think when you, when you kind of unpack that, there is this recognition that we can't escape our parents, right? As much as we like to think we're not like our parents, they are influencing us both positive and negatively. If there's aspects of our parents that we like, we tend to do those things. And if there's aspects of our parents that drive us crazy, we tend to do the 180 degree opposite. So I think you can learn a lot about somebody that way. Can you tell me about the process you went through or how you got people to open up and talk so freely with you? Yeah, you know, they may know corner office. As you said, most of them I've, I've met for the first time. And also, you know, even though I'm pretty transparent with the questions I asked over the years because it was a Q&A format, you know, if, if you're a CEO, you're used to being in control, right? When they would sit down with me, they're not in control because the person who asks the questions kind of has most of the control. So a lot of them, when they would sit down with me, they, you know, the body language tells you everything. They're sitting there with their arms folded across the chest and they're kind of sizing me up. So a few of the strategies that I would use you know, I, I would talk for a few minutes just to give them time to size me up. And even if they're just sitting there kind of frankly stone-faced with their arms folded across their chest, they're just kind of sizing me up. So I would use small talk and, you know, thanks for coming by. And then I would say, would it help you if I told you the backstory of how I started corner office? And so I'd tell them that and, you know, and then just little things. I mean, it was all genuine. You know, I've done a lot of investigative work, vetted an investigative series. Corner Office is not a gotcha format. I am simply trying to have a good conversation and surface their best insights and stories and takeaways. And, you know, that becomes clear. I mean, once they show that you are genuinely, authentically interested, that you have some passion for the subject, that you've thought about it. Some of the other strategies I used, you know, when I would start, I'd say, you know, I'm going to have a million questions for you before we start. Is there anything you want to ask me anything at all? Because that kind of levels the playing field, right? I'm sort of modeling the behavior. It's like, you can literally ask me anything because I'm probably going to ask you anything. A couple of key points. Once the interview starts, I have to say, I mean, I've never really meditated. I'm not that kind of guy, I get fidgety. But um, when I'm doing my interviews for an hour and 15 minutes, that is probably the closest I've come to understanding what meditation is about because you literally have to clear your mind and be fully present. And I've come to appreciate that eye contact, I used to say it's the broadband of communication, but that sounds like old tech, but you know, it's the 5G of communication, I guess you'd say now, but you can look at somebody's eyes and you can tell if they're listening to you. What I realized is just, you know, if I was interviewing somebody and suddenly I'd start thinking about that meeting I have to go to this afternoon, it'd be almost imperceptible, but I could feel something change. So just that discipline of being fully present, being genuinely interested, 
there's not a lot of listening that goes on in our society. And I think our devices aren't helping, you know, whether it's email and you go to a restaurant, you know, half the people there are just on their phones. It's like, why don't you just get takeout? Like, what's the point? How did you conduct the interviews? Did you record them and have a script to work from afterwards? I do record the interviews and I've, I've always used two recorders just because, uh, you know, constructively paranoid. And that allowed me to focus. I, I never brought in a piece of paper into the interviews, which I, I think also was probably slightly disarming to the CEOs because it literally was a conversation. I didn't have a script or anything. That said, I knew the kind of main bases that I wanted to hit. So I always knew, you know, like, the sort of chronology, early lessons, first management role, culture. I knew the broad categories, but that said, I would listen in the moment because the magic is always in the follow-up question. So they might say a phrase once, they might say it 20 minutes later in the interview, and I'll say, you know, you've used that phrase a couple of times. Can you unpack that for me? And that accomplishes two things. First of all, that is where the magic is because it's in, usually in the fourth follow-up question that you get to the good stuff or the better stuff. It's not that the other stuff wasn't good. But the other thing that that does is it shows the person that you're really listening to them. And then they start opening up a little more. So I would record it. I would get it transcribed. The typical transcript would come back about 10,000 words, and I'd boil it down to about 1,000. What was the common thread you found amongst the CEOs and their answers? I found the first three questions I asked, I usually got about 80% of what I needed in terms of understanding this person who metaphorically is a silhouette when you meet them. But, but these three questions kind of filled in a lot of the silhouette for me. And it's just tell me about when you were a kid. Tell me about your parents. And then the third question, which I think for a lot of them, nobody had ever asked them this question before, but how have your parents influenced your leadership style? And even though they might have been prepped beforehand, you could see the gears turning. And for a lot of them, there was a kind of in-the-moment insight. It's like, oh, that's why I run meetings that way. Now, right. And again, it sort of goes back to what we were talking about earlier with the job interview question. It's like, we might not like to think they influence us as much as they do, but our parents are a big influence. Again, positive and negative. I guess what I'm looking for is kind of that common thread in their backgrounds, mm -hmm. you know, how they lead or anything that made them all fantastic leaders. Quick bit of context. So when I started Corner Office, I, I set a few guidelines for myself. One of them was that I was going to embrace diversity in literally every sense of the word, race, gender, nationality, industry, size. I didn't want to just kind of work my way through the Fortune 100. And I looked for people who were thoughtful about leadership, and roughly half of all the people I interviewed were women. And I never asked them any gender-specific questions. So I interviewed them as leaders who happen to be women as opposed to women leaders. So that said, I mean, it, to me, it was the question you just asked was something that I was trying to figure out as I went along. Like, what is it about these people who have such diverse backgrounds. I mean, you know, it's not like 80% of them went to an Ivy League business school. Like I intentionally picked everybody who had incredibly different backgrounds, you know, growing up in a poor village in India to just across the board. And I was always asking myself, well, what is it about these people? And late in the game, I figured out to me what the right phrase was. And the best phrase that I can come up with is applied curiosity. Oh, I like that. I think I'm going to borrow it. Oh, of course. Of course. You know, I, to me, it's a specific flavor of curiosity because, you know, you can have the kind of curious mind that good for facts, you're good at crosswords and you win on Jeopardy. But the applied curiosity just speaks to this habit of mind. There's this relentless questioning of trying to understand how things work. 
And whatever situation they're in, they're always looking around, like trying to understand, okay, how does this work? And tell me about this person. And what they are doing is kind of building models and frameworks in their head to explain to themselves how the world works. Of all the leaders' jobs, to me, that is one of the most important ones, which is can you simplify complexity in a way that is smart and nuanced and correct as opposed to oversimplifying? And so that's the turn of mind, the habit of mind that I saw in all of them. Just this like, how does this work? How does this work? And I think for a lot of them, they, they can't turn it off. It's like they are always on or always in a leadership role, right? Definitely. And, and so, you know, even when you know, if they go to a shopping mall on the weekend with their spouse, that suddenly turns into them interviewing the store manager and giving them some advice. And, you know, it's like, okay, your square footage is here, your annual revenue, your rent is probably this. Did you know if you moved the... And, and, you know, and then their spouse walks up to them and says, can we just go shopping? Yeah. I remember reading about uh, Andy Grove years ago, who said he's basically successful because he's paranoid and lived his life that way when he was CEO of Intel. Did you find that at all? I will say I'm not a huge fan of that word. As I mean, I get what he was saying, but it is a negative word. Even if he didn't mean it in a negative sense, it is a negative word. And I think if you're a leader for all your employees and you say, this is one of my core values, like that might actually affect your culture. And to me, it's more about like seeing around corners, uh, you know, and mixing metaphors. Like you build the framework for, okay, this is how my industry works today. These are the external forces that are going to shape the industry. So this is how it's going to look five years from now. That's your job. And part of that is paranoia in the sense of like, that's what seeing around corners is about, right? Like, you know, I'm trying to take into account all the external factors that might surprise me so they don't surprise me. I guess that's paranoid, but I think it's more about seeing around corners. And that's why diversity is so important because, again, it's like a line of sight physics question. If you have people with different perspectives, you're going to see farther around more corners. How often in our practice we find that CEOs, particularly of a certain age, uh, tend to want to hire people that are a lot like them and don't recognize that level of diversity. Uh, did you find that in some of the CEOs that you have met with and those that are obviously have a, a level of success that they tend to really buy into the belief that they need people that work for them that maybe are smarter than them, maybe think about things in a different way and are able to really complement the way that they see their business and the business challenges they have? It definitely came up a lot. And a lot of it was sort of pretty powerful lessons they learned the hard way early in their careers as managers and leaders. I heard this story so often of a variation of it too often to even count. But, you know, when they first become a manager, they start hiring people who are like them, right? Yeah. Yep. Kind of mini me versions. Uh, one CEO told me that his colleagues actually made fun of the guy who he hired because he literally looked like him. <laughs> that works for a little bit and probably feels good, but then it just kind of breaks down because if everybody is sort of the same, then you don't get that diversity of thought. And they have the same blind spots, right? To your point about senior corners. They pretty much all learn the lesson the hard way. Uh, and then they start to appreciate the, the benefits of diversity. And, you know, it, it's something that I think everybody uh, wrestles with a little bit because you do want that chemistry, right? And that chemistry is usually going to come more naturally from somebody who is like you. 
to me, there's a, an important distinction around the diversity question that I think has to be highlighted, which is you don't want that much diversity in terms of like your values and how you're going to fit on the team and work with the team, right? You actually need the team to be pretty cohesive about how a team should work, right. but you want those different backgrounds so you get those different perspectives so you can see around more corners. Right. So that's, again, it's, it's, it is that sweet spot. You want people who think differently, but who also have the same values. And that's a tricky casting call. Yeah, absolutely. Adam, last question. You've been very, very generous with your time, but I did want to cover, you know, an area as it relates to, again, some of these uh, CEOs that you've met with. You had 500, that's, you know, about 50 so a year that you were doing. So about once a week, I guess, on average is how it worked out to. Mm-hmm. Um, as you went through the process and, of course, did this for a number of years, you know, you developed your own style as it related to how you communicated and asked those questions. Did you find that over time, those CEOs actually also, you know, kind of developed their responses? What do I mean by that? Uh, did you find that there was a certain level of, you know, consistency in terms of how they would address, for example, some of those things about their early years, right? You know, I love that to be able to have people talk about maybe some of the common things that happened during that period, uh, or as it relates to leadership style, again, where there's some commonalities, any kind of you know, common threads. I think our audience would be very interested, particularly the CEOs that will be participating in kind of understanding what maybe some of those things were that might have been developing with them across the course of their careers. It's fascinating. I did ask roughly the same questions week after week. Right. And a lot of people, if you step back, you say at a very high level, the insights a lot of them shared were similar. But I came to think of it's almost like a fingerprint. I mean, all our fingers kind of look the same, but all our fingerprints are different. Mm. I was interested in the nuances of that. Right, right. And if you use a, you know, the metaphor of a mountain, kind of the journey to become a leader going up the mountain, the way I think about it is that everybody picks their own path up the mountain, but by the time you get to the top, it's a smaller space and there's some common insights and themes there. You've used a walking stick. You've had to use pitons at some point in time, right? Exactly. You had your snowshoes. <laughs> That's a good analogy. You do see some of the same lessons. And, and just because of the way I structured the column that it was a thousand words, if I found people repeating things that had come a lot, then I would just focus on the things that felt new to me. Um, yeah. but, you know, boy, everybody's background is is just so different. It sort of goes back to the question you asked earlier about like, why are these people who they are? And I think <laughs> I think some people are just born that way that you can just can tell there's this kind of relentless energy to them right. that they just can't turn off. It's like their skin exists to contain that energy and business is just an outlet for it. Right. There's those people, there's people who just faced tremendous adversity when they were younger and it really toughened them up. And you know, maybe they had some scares as kids and you can tell that that's driving them. Um, some people hit the parent lottery uh, where, you know, you know, typical profile, be a father entrepreneur, a mother in an EQ role like psychologist and, you know, or father was an engineer and mother was an artist or vice versa. Right. And, and just having that kind of the two sides of the brain working, I, I saw a lot of those patterns. But, you know, at the end of the day, this is one of the great mysteries of life, right? Like our, you know, how much of his nature versus nurture. And, right. you know, I think it's a bit of both. Adam Bryant, this has been wonderful. Uh, I want to thank you so much for your time. And I perhaps should have started with this because I've learning too as we're doing <laughs> through the process. But are there any questions you have for me and, uh, you know, our intent here? Let me ask you this question. It's, it, out of all 
you mentioned your favorite corner office interviews. Like, what was the most important or interesting insight for you that that you took away from the interviews? You know, it's it's very interesting you say that because I asked some of the questions to try to get at it. I really enjoyed the diversity, right? I enjoyed being able to learn about, and, and now I understand why, learn about how many of these folks, you know, and I must say, I did read every one of them, mm-hmm. uh, but there were certainly many people that I admired and followed over the course of my career. And what intrigued me was just how different their backgrounds were. But kind of like you said, they all got to the top of the mountain. They kind of, you know, cut their own path to get there. And uh, yeah, you know, it's probably more interesting than not that they did do it their own way and that they weren't necessarily some commonalities with them. Um, because, you know, one of the things that I, I noticed was, you know, some of them were orphans. Some of them came from great families. Some of them came from abusive families. Yeah. I mean, you know, there was certainly the nature diversity. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the commonality, and I've seen this in many of the CEOs in our practice. I love the way you described the applied curiosity. Mm-hmm. I could tell with any one of them, they were above average intelligence. Yep. They had an opportunity to really take a look at a market and understand it to their best effect and, and you know, got lucky along the way. Mm-hmm. I think that was another common thing that I saw uh, very frequently that, you know, many of them were humble enough to admit they were in the right place at the right time. Yeah. And I do believe that's important. But I must say, I think what I enjoyed was really reading everyone else's story. And the fingerprint, as you've said, as it relates to, you know, how they achieve what they achieve. (laughs) That's great. Well, Adam, once again, thank you. Thank you, Brent. Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brant, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.goforroi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode. 